Good morning, everybody. We're ready to take this to another level. Amen. Go ahead. You can give God a shout of praise. You can give him a hand clap. Precious Heavenly Father, we pray today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through your word, and that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the eyes and the knowledge of you that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, cause us to know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the beloved, cause us to know the exceeding greatness of your power towards us who believe. Cause us to know who we are. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, we talked about your purpose. Your purpose is the why. Why you are. We often want to know who we are, but the who you are is located in the why you are. If you don't know why you are, you don't know who you are. But once you know why you are, then you know who you are. So last night, the session was about why you are. That's your purpose. This morning, who you are, your identity. Tonight, what you are, your nature. And tomorrow morning, what you're supposed to do, your mission. You put all four of these things together, and you are poised to live a powerful life filled with clarity. Now, last night, what we discovered is that the only way that you discover why you are, your purpose, is to stop looking for it. (laughs) Jesus said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake and for the gospel, he shall find it. And so if you want to discover yourself, you got to stop looking for yourself. If you want to find out who you are, you got to stop worrying about who you are, and you got to focus on who he is. Because your purpose is bound up in his identity. And so if you can identify him, in time you will discover you but you will discover you as a reflection of who he is because you have been created in his image and in his likeness. We talked about how a baby's first word is never baby. Babies become conscious of their parents before they become conscious of themselves, right? A baby's first word is always mommy or daddy, and Jesus says we've got to become like children, literally like babies, if we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's actually two Greek words. One of them means children, and another means sons. Whenever you see children, typically it's talking about infantile children, and whenever you see sons, typically it's talking about mature sons. He didn't use the mature version, sons. He used the infantile version, children, technia. You've got to humble yourselves and become like children in their infancy, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that means forgetting about yourself, stop searching for self, stop wondering about who you are, and focus all of your attention on the Father. And so today, this morning, we're going to begin to talk about discovering your identity. Now, if you've discovered that your purpose is to be the object of God's eternal love, if you discover that's your purpose, is to be the the object of the eternal love of the heavenly Father, then what is your identity? If your purpose is love, your identity is? Right, sonship. In other words, if, 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 just, just think about it just very logically for a second. If you discovered a being whose whole purpose in existing was to be the eternal object of their parents' love, what would you call that being? You'd call them a child. 
You're a son or you're a daughter. Your identity is that you are a son or a daughter of God, sons and daughters of God. So in John chapter 1, John talks about Jesus Christ as the preexistent word of God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Through him all things were made. And then he goes on to say, and he, he came into the world, but the world did not know him. But to those who believed him, to those who received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. And it said, even as many as believed in his name. So God gives us the right to become sons and daughters of God. Right? And then John says this in 1 John chapter 3. We read the first part last night. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Now the second part this morning. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So behold what manner of love the Father has has bestowed upon us. That's our purpose. That we should be called children of God. That's our identity. Our identity is that we are sons and daughters of God. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. That is our identity. The only problem is that we typically don't identify with that identity. We identify with everything else but our sonship. Now, the first problem is we tend to identify ourselves vocationally. You meet somebody new, what's the first thing you ask? Well, what is your name? And then the next question you ask is, what do you do? Because in our culture, if you want to understand someone's identity, you must understand their vocation. Your vocation and your identity are synonymous. So you say, oh, I'm a salesman. I'm a carpenter. Oh, I'm a developer. I'm an engineer. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a musician. I'm a poet. I'm a model. (laughs) Right? We identify ourselves according to our vocation. Well, there's a problem with that, isn't there? Because your identity is where you draw your sense of fulfillment. And if you identify yourself with your vocation, you better do it well all the time Because if you identify with your vocation and then you fail at your vocation, then you will feel like a failure. You will identify with failure. Whenever somebody says, I'm a failure, you're a failure. How can you be a failure? How can that be your identity? Well, because I started five businesses, they all failed. And I went into bankruptcy and I lost everything and I lost my house, so I'm a failure. Well, wait a minute. You lost five businesses, but which one of them was you? How are you a failure? No, you had five businesses that failed. But there's a distinction between what you do and who you are. You're a human being, not a human doing. And so your doing can fail without your being. How can you be a failure? Dislocating your identity from your vocation is the first step. Dislocating your identity from your vocation allows you to find your sense of significance in something higher than your doing, than your function. And we realize that this, that identifying yourself functionally flows naturally out of 
dis- out of believing that your purpose is something functional. Because yeah. yeah. if you believe that God puts you here, your purpose is um, to be a doctor. Well, number one, let's say you're 12 years old and you, th- and you believe my purpose is to be a doctor. So now you don't have any sense of purpose until you become a doctor. You can't be fulfilled in life until you become a doctor. You, your joy is postponed until you achieve something. Wow. You've postponed your sense of fulfillment and your sense of joy and your sense of significance until you've achieved something that will take another 20 years to get there. And then what happens when you fail? You ever met some, have, have you ever known somebody who, who thought, I'm supposed to be this, and they went through all the school and then they failed? What happens if you can never actually be that? Do you know how terrible of an existence it would be to believe your purpose is to be a doctor, but then to fail out of med school in the middle of it and never actually become a doctor? That is the definition of anxiety. You're going to identify with failure for the rest of your life until you dissociate those functions from your purpose so that you can dissociate them from your identity as well. And so the first problem is we identify ourselves in terms of vocation. Second problem is we identify ourselves in terms of sexuality. Yeah. Talk about my sexual identity. No. Sexuality has nothing to do with identity, with who you are. That might be part of your nature, what you are, but it's not part of your identity, who you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because once, once again, it's temporal. Jesus, remember the Sadducees came to Jesus and they asked him, because, you know, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they came to Jesus and they said, so there was a man uh, who had seven brothers. And he was married. He was the oldest. He died. His brother took his wife. He died. His next brother took his wife. All seven of them were married to her. They all died having no children. Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Since they all had her. And Jesus said, you're in error because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In heaven, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. But they're all like the angels. Translation, your sexuality is as temporary as this life is. So how can it be your identity when it is temporary? If your sexuality is your identity, then when you get to heaven, you're not going to have any identity. You're just going to be identity-less. Just John Doe's and Jane Doe's just walking around heaven. Since I don't know myself sexually, I guess I don't have an identity. It never was supposed to be your identity. And who were you before you were sexually alive, before you even discovered you had a sexuality? Who were you when you were five years old? You had no identity. In actuality, your identity is the person you were from the moment you were born. In other words, you're not becoming who you are. So I'm trying to become who I am. That doesn't make no sense. How are you going to become who you already are? There is a development and a becoming, but that has to do with your nature. You're growing into your nature, not your identity. The moment Aletheia had a heartbeat, I just like doing that. (laughs) Sounds like beatboxing. (laughs) The moment she had an the moment she had a heartbeat, she had an identity. I identified her. That's my child right there. Didn't know her sexuality yet. Had no idea if she was a male or female, but one thing I knew is she's my child. Her identity is not bound up in her gender. 
Her identity is bound up in the fact that she has a mommy and a daddy. If you've got a parent, you've got an identity. That's my child. And when you begin to identify yourself as a son or a daughter, it changes your whole orientation toward life. Because when you begin to identify yourself as a son or a daughter, you begin to identify yourself with the love of your parent. Now, in Matthew chapter 3, something very interesting happens. Jesus enters into the waters of the Jordan River where John is there baptizing people. And he goes to John and he says, I want you to baptize me. And John protests and says, you want me to baptize you? You should be baptizing me. I'm not worthy to even unlatch your sandals. But Jesus says, no, permitted to be in order to fulfill all righteousness. John consents. He baptizes Jesus. And the moment Jesus comes up out of the water, John says that he sees the heavens being torn open. And the spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. And remains on him. And then a voice from heaven comes. And what does the voice say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How many miracles had Jesus worked up to this time? Zero. How many teachings had he given? Zero. How many sermons had he preached? Zero. How many blind eyes had he opened? Zero. How many deaf ears had he unstopped? Zero. Had he died yet? No. Had he arisen from the dead yet? No. He had done nothing yet. There was nothing functional yet. He had not functioned in any way, but yet the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Why am I well pleased with him? Because he's my beloved Son. Not because of what he does, but because of who he is. He's my beloved Son, and as long as he's my beloved Son, I will continue to be well pleased with him what pleases the father is sonship and then Paul defines salvation as becoming sons and daughters of God we talked about Romans chapter 8, verse 15 yesterday. And in Romans 8, 15, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. In verse 16, he says, The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, as long as we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified together. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were born again, and the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of sonship, came on the inside of you and made you a child of God. He's called the spirit of adoption because through our receiving, of, our coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the spirit, and through the spirit, we are adopted as God's sons and daughters, the spirit of adoption. But God's adoption is different from our adoption. You see, my parents adopted a little girl when she was three years old. She's my sister. I love her. I love her with my soul. All of us love her. She took the name Robinson. But bless her heart, she can't sing. She's got our name, but not our nature. I wish we could give her our nature, but we couldn't. And she, I remember she was little. She loved to sing. She loved to sing. Just couldn't do it. Didn't know she couldn't do it. 
just would sing as loud as she could because that's what everybody's, all of us around her just singing and she just singing, singing, all out of tune. But we just smiled and just, yeah, that's it. Keep singing, girl. Keep singing. Don't tell her. Don't tell her. <laughs> I don't think, she still doesn't know. <laughs> but when God adopts you, he actually gives you his nature. Not just his name, but his nature. There at the end of 1 Peter chapter 1, somewhere around verse 21 or something like that, he says, you have been born again. You have been born again, not of corruptible, but incorruptible seed through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Or through the living and enduring word of God. I keep going back and forth between the King James Version and other versions in my mind. You have been born again through the incorruptible seed. Do you know what that word seed in the Greek is? Spermatos. You have been born again through the incorruptible sperm of the word of God. That is, when you receive the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's God's very DNA that comes on the inside of you and gives you new life. And now you have received God's very nature. 2 Peter chapter 2. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that by them we might participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. He gives us his very nature when he adopts us. Meaning, not only do you have his name, but you can also sing. I mean... Some of y'all can't sing, but that's a metaphor. It's a metaphor meaning you can live righteous. See, the Robinson family, our nature is music. But God's family, his nature is righteousness. And that's what it means. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory, meaning that our nature before we came to Christ was unrighteousness. But when we came to Christ and we received his nature, now righteousness becomes our nature. And that's what it means to be sons and daughters of God. Now, one thing I've been practicing over the last week is what we call tabernacle prayer. And in tabernacle prayer, in the, the, in the Old Covenant, there was the temple or the tabernacle, and both were set up the same way. That You go back to the tabernacle of Moses, there was three sections to it. When you come in, there was a big area called the outer court, and then you go into a smaller area called the inner court, and then there's a veil, and you go into another small area called the Holy of Holies. And, and all of the, the, the pieces, the articles of furniture in each of these areas of the tabernacle actually were symbolic of elements of our salvation. So when you first come into the outer court, you approach what's called the brazen altar, and that's where the sacrifice for sin is laid on the altar. So the first thing that we approach when we come into the outer court is the cross of Jesus Christ, and the cross of Jesus Christ represents the brazen altar. It's the place where Jesus paid the price for our sin, made the, the final sacrifice to, for, for our forgiveness and our, and, and, and our forgiveness of sins and our being justified and made righteous before God. But then when you go beyond the brazen altar, you come to what's called the laver, which is the wash basin. It was made out of hammered brass, polished, polished bronze, excuse me. It's made out of pro- polished bronze. And at the laver, the priests would prepare themselves to go into the holy place by washing themselves thoroughly in the laver. Yeah. 
So they would wash, they would take off all their clothes, and they would climb into the laver, and they would bathe themselves. They'd wash themselves thoroughly, but then they'd climb out of the wash base and watch this. It's made out of polished bronze, which was, the, which was a reflective material. It's what they used for mirrors. They called it the looking glass, which means after you come to the brazen altar where the sacrifice is made for your sin, and after you climb out of the wash basin where by the power of the Holy Spirit you're washed and made clean, now you see your reflection in the wash basin, and suddenly you see yourself as clean. You see yourself as made righteous, and suddenly you begin to identify yourself according to what God has done for you rather than according to what you have done to you. You see, Paul... Our third problem is that we associate or identify ourselves by our failures and our shortcomings and our sins. If you ask the average Christian, define what it means to be a human being, one of the first things we'll say is a sinner. A human being is a sinner by definition, and that's wrong. Because when God created Adam and Eve, he did not create two sinners. God created Adam and Eve. They were perfect. Without sin, without blemish, completely righteous. Sin tarnished our humanity. It did not make, it did not make us fully human. We lost a piece of our humanity when we entered into sin. The definition of you is not your failure, not your sin, not your shortcomings. That's actually a lie. That tarnishes the who you are. And so just as you must dissociate your, your, your sense of identity from your vocation yeah. so that you don't see yourself as a salesman, yeah. and you must dissociate your identity from your sexuality, yeah. you also must dissociate your identity from your sin yeah, yeah, and yeah. from your failures. Yeah. And see, this is, this is so important because a lot of times, let's say when somebody needs deliverance or freedom for something, they come to the altar, they have a powerful experience, then they go home and say, let's see if it worked. And then you mess up again, you say, see, I knew it didn't work because this is really who I am. You think the altar was a lie, but when you go home and you fall and you mess up again, that's the truth. No, you got it twisted. It's the other way around. When you came to the altar and you felt cleansed by God, that was who you really are. When you went home and messed up, that's the lie. You got deceived when you, mess, when you, got, when you went home. That was the lie. You should not identify yourself with your failure. You should identify yourself through the cross of Jesus Christ that he has made you perfectly righteous and perfectly clean. That is your identity. And Paul says it explicitly in Romans chapter 7, verse 20, when he says, for if I do what I do not want to do, then it is no longer I, but sin working in me. Paul describes his prior life in sin. He says, it wasn't actually me. It wasn't me. That's not who I am. That's not my identity. It was sin working in me. It was not me working in me. It was sin working in me. He dissociates his own identity even from his past sin. Does that make sense? Now, once you're able to dissociate your identity from your activity, your identity from your vocation, your identity from your sexuality, your identity from your failures and from your sins, and you set all of that to the right, and now you come over here to the left and say, now, Lord, show me who I am. At the core of your identity as a son or daughter of God is favor. 
you begin to identify yourself by the favor of the Lord. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The pleasure of the Lord is manifested in the form of favor. So John baptizes Jesus. The heavens open and the spirit descends upon him like a dove. The descending of the spirit upon Jesus was the physical manifestation of what the father said. He said, he's my son in whom I'm well pleased. So he speaks it and then he manifests that pleasure by giving him the spirit. So there's a difference between speaking something and manifesting something. If I say, you know, I really am pleased with Emily. But if I put my hand on her shoulder when I say, you know, I'm really pleased with Emily. What's my hand on her shoulder doing? Manifesting what I'm speaking. So there's this guy named Joseph. We learn about him in Genesis 32 and then in Genesis 37. Joseph is the 10th or the 11th son of his father, Jacob. So Jacob has 12 sons. The youngest is Benjamin. Joseph was born to him in his old age. Joseph and Benjamin both. Jacob actually didn't like his first 10 sons very much. Jacob was a great father to Joseph. He was a terrible father to the first 10. And matter of fact, it says somewhere there in Genesis 37 that Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other sons. I mean, the Bible said it. (laughs) And actually, Jacob said it himself. He brought Joseph in front of his brothers and said, I just want all y'all to know I love him more than all of y'all. But he didn't say it with words. He manifested that. How did he do it? He made him a coat of many colors. Another version says a richly ornamented robe. He calls a family meeting. At that time, there were 11 brothers. I need all 11 y'all in the living room. So they all come. They're sitting on the couch. He goes, Joseph, come here, son. Joseph comes and stands up. He says, brothers, do you see this young man? I want to show you something. And he goes in the closet and comes out with his richly ornamented robe. And Joseph was like, oh, that's the most beautiful fur coat I've ever seen before in my life. I don't know if it was a fur coat. Or what. He put it on Joseph and Joseph's like, eh, eh, eh. no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he gave him some platform shoes. No. He put the coat on Jacob, on Joseph. And the other brothers are like, where's our coats? He goes, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> These coats are reserved for sons that I'm pleased with. So now the other ten brothers are jealous. And rightfully so in some ways. Because Joseph, you know, Joseph knew his father favored him, but Joseph didn't have any sense. Joseph didn't grow up in East Oakland like me. Because when you grow up in East Oakland, you can feel it when you walk into the room and people don't like you. When you grow up in East Oakland, you can sense violence. You know what I'm talking about? If anybody is getting ready to hurt anybody, you walk into a room, you're like, there's violence up in here. I'm getting up out of here. (laughs) And especially if the violence is directed at you, if somebody's even thinking about hurting you, you could sense it. 
and you start getting ready or you get out, depending on your nature. I had some friends who were like, they would run after violence. What's up then? Not me. I would run out. I'm like, "Mm -mm." (laughs) mm-mm. I remember I was playing basketball with my cousin one time, and we were up, it was, I was probably a junior high school, high school, early high school, and me and him were killing these, these Samoans. Listen, if you're ever playing basketball with some Samoans, don't beat them too bad. And if, you're, if you are beating them, like, don't talk smack. Me and Chris were killing them, and I was talking smack the whole time. And, and when the game was over, I think Chris sensed it before I did, because he was out. We made the last bucket. I was like, oh, that's right, in your face. And I was like, and I turned around and Chris was gone. He was already halfway down the hill. (laughs) And I was like, hey, man, what happened? And then I looked over and they were huddled up looking at me. And I start backing away. And and they turned and like, hey, come here. We want to talk to you. We want to talk to you. Come here. I was like, y'all don't want to talk to me. I I was like, they don't want to talk. I was like, "Mm mm-mm, I can sense danger. Mm Mm-mm, stranger danger. (laughs) They're about to hit me hard, fast, and often. Joseph had no barometer. Watch this. His brothers already hate him. He wakes up one morning, comes to the breakfast table. Brothers. Good morning, brothers. I had a dream last night. In my dream, all of us were bales of hay. My bale of hay stood in the middle of all of you, and all of you bowed down to me. And they're just sitting there thinking, I'm going to kill this little kid. (laughs) The next morning he comes to breakfast. Good morning, brothers. I've had another dream. And since sharing yesterday's dream went so well, I thought I would share my second dream with you this morning. I had a dream. Oh, mom and dad, you two were in this one too. Brothers, all of us were stars. Mom and dad, you were the sun and the moon, and my star was in the middle, and all of you bowed down to me. (laughs) If somebody were to take Joseph aside and say, you know, every time you share something like that, they they just want to kill you. It's like, who? Your brothers. Don't you know they hate you? No. They love me. Joseph had so much love from his father that he couldn't feel the hate of anyone else. He could walk into a room where everybody hated him, where everybody wanted to kill him, and he just felt loved. He was so intoxicated by the love of his father that he was incapable of feeling rejection. Can you imagine what that would be like? Do you realize that when we feel rejection, it actually is not about the other people in the room. You actually brought it in with you. Somebody says, I'm all out of rejection. No problem. I brought my own. (laughs) Would you like some? (laughs) Joseph was filled with the love and favor of his father, to the extent that he was incapable of feeling the rejection and hatred of others. He was blind to the hatred of others. 
You know, when one of the most powerful, powerful images, I think, in Scripture is in Psalm 23 when David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Can you just think about that for a second? What that image would be like. God takes you into the projects at about 10 o'clock at night. He says, I want to show you something. Come, come with me. He takes you by the hand. Walks you right into the middle of the projects, and there's drug dealers and thugs everywhere. And the gangs start to crowd around you and make a circle around you, and they're just mean mugging you. And God says, watch this. I got something for you. And he takes you right into the middle of the projects, in the middle of the most violent, gang-infested, drug-infested area. And he takes you, and he's got this little table with two seats. He goes, have a seat. I say, well, what are we doing, God? <laughs> I've prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. How are you going to eat from that table? You have to just keep looking at God. Yeah. Don't look at them. Look at me. Yeah. Yeah. Stop looking around at the people that hate you. Look into the eyes of the one who loves you. Yeah. Stop looking around at the ones who want to kill you. Look into the eyes of the one who gives you life. Joseph had no sense. In the Old Testament, you know, the, in the ancient world, the least esteemed member of the household had to be the shepherd. Typically, it was the youngest son. That's why when Samuel shows up to anoint David, and he says to Jesse, bring out all your sons, he doesn't even think to call Jesse, David in from the field. David is the shepherd, Right? And so Samuel has to say, don't you have any more sons? And Jesse's like, no. Oh, wait a minute. That's right. <laughs> I do have one more, but he's with the sheep. Translation, we don't think nothing of him. He says, well, go get him. And he goes and gets the one who's not, a stain, uh, uh, not esteemed. <laughs> I said, not esteemed. I said, I said, I said that in Ebonics. And, and uh, God says, this is the one. Arise and anoint him. Isn't that funny? In this situation, the one that man did not esteem was the one that God esteemed. But watch what happens with Joseph and his brothers. Remember, the least esteemed one is the shepherd. So when it's time to start giving out all the, you know, the jobs in the family, so the father calls all 11 sons. He goes, all right, so here's what I need. Um, Joseph, come here. And they're thinking, great, he's going to make him be the shepherd. He goes, you're staying in the house with me. The rest of y'all are the shepherds. <laughs> <laughs> And he sent the, uh, the ten oldest ones, he sent them out to be with the sheep. Do you understand how shameful that was? you understand how hard that must have been? <laughs> right? And Joseph's walking around the house wearing his coat of many colors. So now, and his dad doesn't get, his e get it either. Jacob goes, okay, I need you to go find your brothers. And I need you to you know, come back and, and tell me what they're doing. Tell me if they're in the, the right place. And so Joseph goes out looking for his brothers. They were supposed to be in one city. He goes to that city. Have you seen 10 good-for-nothing uh, shepherds out here? With <laughs> Like, oh, yeah, they went over to that city over there. And Joseph's like, oh, they're in trouble. And so Joseph is marching to that city, wearing his coat of many colors. He wore it everywhere. He probably slept in it. It was like a reminder to his brothers, I'm favored and you're not. The Father loves me, and he does not love you. Do you know that when you wear the favor of your heavenly Father, it ticks the enemy off? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
The moment you get a hold of the revelation that God favors you and you start wearing that favor, you start walking around in the knowledge that you're favored by God, it makes the enemy so angry. And the brothers see him approaching in the distance, wearing the coat of many colors. Like, oh, man, he found us. And Joseph's like, wait till I tell father that they're not where they're supposed to be. He's already writing down their names on a clipboard. <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and what happens? When he approaches, he still can't sense as he's approaching them. He can't see the anger in their eyes. He can't see the violence in their faces. I don't know about you, but you, you're not going to lie and wait for me and jump me like that. Yeah. Mm -mm. I would have sensed that. I would have stopped 40 feet. So what y'all about to do? What's, why are you looking at me like that? I would have started backing out of there. Joseph said, brothers. <laughs> they jump on him. They beat him. And what's the first thing they do? They strip him of the garment. The first, what is this all about? Take the coat. I can't stand to see the coat. Get the coat. Strip him of the garment. Take the Father's favor away from him. Yeah. Yeah. Do you realize that the enemy's primary agenda in your life is to strip you of the garment? Yeah. If there's anything he wants to do is to take the coat away from you, is to strip you of the favor of your father. If he can do anything, he will strip your mind of the revelation of the fact that the father favors you. If he can get you to feel unfavored, if he can get you to feel rejected, if he can get you to feel not good enough for God, if he can get you to feel like you haven't pleased him, if he can get you to feel like you've got to work for the favor of God, he has succeeded even if he can't destroy anything else in your life, if he can strip you of the garment... He'll leave your finances alone, but he'll strip you of the garment if he can. He doesn't care about your houses and your lands. He'll strip you of the garment if he can. He'll even leave you in your ministry position. He won't mess with your tithe. He'll even leave your family and your kids alone. But if he can strip you of the garment and take away the Father's favor from your heart, he succeeded. Strip him of the garment. And now that they've beaten him, thrown him in a pit and stripped him of the garment, they said, what do we do now? Because now he's surely going to tell the father. <laughs> do you realize that the moment they begin to inflict violence on him, they became afraid of the father? Wow. Yeah. Because they knew that to touch the son is to touch the father. To touch the one whom the father favors is to touch the father. Suddenly they became afraid of the wrath of the father. Do you know what sonship does for you? Sonship gives you a proper definition of the wrath of God. Because before you embrace sonship, you thought the wrath of God was against you. But the moment you embrace sonship, you begin to understand the true nature of the wrath of God. Do you know when I got a revelation of the wrath of God? When I was a freshman in college and I was directing the high school, uh, the high school choir and I took them to this competition and I, I took them up to this platform in this competition and, and the place went wild. They had remembered us from the year before and they were screaming and, and I took and I put my choir on. We were, this, we were the only black kids there and there was about a thousand kids there and I had my little choir of about 30 people. And, and you remember this, Charles? And, and the, 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 the sound guy up in the balcony, he said over the loudspeaker, don't move the microphones. But I didn't hear him because the, the crowd was screaming. So I moved the microphones and placed them over my choir. Well, he turned off all the mics. So we're the only black kids there, and there's about maybe 30 kids in my choir. And this auditorium seats about, what, 4,000 people, something like that? 
And so we're singing at the top of our lungs, but they can barely hear us because that guy up there turned off the microphones. And I didn't even know what had happened. We just sang our song, and it was over. And when it was all over, what our, the sound guy from our choir walked up to me and looked at me and said, that's what happens when you mess with the sound man. I was like, what happened? And all of a sudden, I hear my father roaring. And he goes, I'm going to mess with him because he's messing with my son. <laughs> and I looked at my dad, and my dad looked like he wanted to strangle him to death with his bare hands. You know what I saw in my father's faith? Wrath. Yeah. But not against me. Yeah, yeah. Against anyone who would mess with me. And all of a sudden, in that moment, I got the right revelation of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not directed at his sons and daughters. It's directed at anyone who would mess with his sons and daughters. It's directed at anyone who would touch his beloved sons and daughters. The wrath of God is a wonderful thing. All of a sudden, I said, I love it when God gets angry. Is he angry? Woo, Mufasa, Mufasa, Mufasa. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> One brother said, let's kill him. Another brother said, no, we can't kill him. So what do we do with him? We can't kill him and we can't release him. Let's try to make him a slave. Watch this. Let's take away the favor and let's make him a slave. That's what the enemy wants to do to you. Take away the favor and make you a slave. He's used to being a son. He'll never make it as a slave. I know the worst thing we could do to him is move him from sonship back to slavery. Let's sell him as a slave. And they sell him as a slave. And there's, there's these, uh, these slave traders that buy him. They take him to Egypt. They sell him to Potiphar. Potiphar is the executioner of Pharaoh. Yeah. Potiphar takes him to his house. Now, I wouldn't have made it. Potiphar would have given me back. He would have asked for his money back the next day. Because I would have been the worst slave he ever. <laughs> you know why? Because I have this problem. It's called, I have an attitude problem. When I'm in a situation that does not correspond to what I believe I deserve, I get a bad attitude. I'd have woke up the next morning and Potiphar would have been like, mop that floor. And I would have been like, my brothers hate me. I lost the robe. Never see my father again. Now I'm a slave. Nobody knows. The trouble, I would have done just enough not to get beat. I wouldn't have been like Kunta. They wouldn't have had to cut my foot off. <laughs> he would have just shown me the whip. I would have been, Toby! My name is Toby. <laughs> Joseph wakes up in the morning. Potiphar goes, mop that floor. Joseph says, you want to see a floor get mopped? I'm about to mop this floor. You ain't never, Pam, Pam, you ain't never seen a floor get mopped like this. And Potiphar was like, dang, that's the cleanest floor I've ever seen before in my life. 
And Joseph's like, that's right. What else you got? What else you got? Why does Joseph have a good attitude? Okay, let's take a step back. Last night, last night we finished the service. The altar was happening. And I was disappointed. Just to be real with y'all. Because typically when I give that first teaching of Abba, you know, your purpose, people get blasted. I expected all y'all to be slain in the spirit. <laughs> like weeping Pokemon tears. Everybody was supposed to be just shaking on the floor, just, you know, writhing in the revelation. You know, you're supposed to just be blasted. And everybody was just quiet. And then my wife got up and said, I'm glad it's quiet hour. I'm like, I'm not. Because <laughs> that way we don't have to strive. We, can't we strive a little bit? <laughs> and in my heart, I said, God, what, what's, what's going on here? I'm talking to the Lord. I said, God, what's going on here? Why, why, why does this happen? Why do I feel like you leave me at the end of the sermon? It happens all the time. I feel the anointing, I feel your presence until I finish the sermon, and then all of a sudden you just leave. Why? What's going on? Help me understand. And the moment I asked that question, I saw a picture of my daughter giving me a bad attitude. Mm. 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 She's at that attitude age. Fine. F okay. Hold on a second. <laughs> I tell her all the time, I'm like, you better be glad you, you were not the, the daughter of Peter and Diane Robinson. <laughs> do, you, do you know what would have happened to me if I would have said that one time? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> it's a new generation, boy. But I said, God, I have a bad attitude? That's me? And the Lord spoke to me and said, son, I'm so pleased with what you did up there. Why aren't you pleased with what I'm doing? I'm always pleased with you. Why are you not pleased with me? And I was like, oh, my God, I've got a bad attitude. <laughs> And you know where I went back to in my memory? When I was a little boy, my dad told me, I think I was fifth or sixth grade, he goes, son, if you get A's in school, I'm going to take you to an A's game. So I was so excited. The next quarter, I worked my tail off, and I got straight A's in all my classes. And my dad took a day off work to take me to the A's game. I didn't know how financially strapped my parents were or what a sacrifice it was, number one, for my dad to take the day off, and number two, for him to buy tickets to the A's game. He takes me to the game, and you know what I did? I complained through the whole game. You remember that, Dad? He remembers it, of course. <laughs> I complained the whole game. The whole game, I'm like, buy me that. Everything that came by, buy me one of those. Buy me that. 
buy me one of those. Buy me that. Can I have that? I want one of those. And my dad was like, son, I can't afford that. Son, I can't afford that. Son, I can't afford that. Son, I'm sorry. I'd like to get you that, but I can't afford that. And then we get in the car to leave after the game's over, and I said, I didn't really have a good time. And the moment those words came out of my mouth, and I saw the pain in my father's face when I said that, it destroyed me inside. I thought, what in the world are you, why would you say that? What is wrong with you? (laughs) And I saw the pain in my father's face, and it took me years to actually comprehend that my father had poured out his love and favor upon me, but I was displeased. He was showing me, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased, but I was not showing him, you're my father in whom I'm well pleased. Your purpose is to receive the Father's love. And once you open your heart to fully receive it, in sonship you can reciprocate the Father's love. And all of a sudden in my heart when I sat there last night and and all that transpired in my mind, I said, God, oh my God, I've got a bad attitude. I said, Lord, Lord, I'm so sorry. Lord, I delight in you. You are my beloved father in whom I am well pleased. And I love what you're doing right now. And when my attitude changed, all of a sudden my perspective changed. And I could actually see what the father was doing in the house. And you know what I saw? Y'all got hit by the word so hard last night, you were speechless. You guys were at the altar like this. And all of a sudden it hit me. You know when folks like come to church and then they don't come to church for a few weeks? They got hit so hard by the word, they couldn't come for a few. It's like they were speechless for three weeks. Okay, my wife's like, don't take it too far. (laughs) (laughs) Joseph performed so well as a slave that he was made master over all the other slaves. The question is, what what was the impetus? What gave Joseph the emotional energy to be jubilant and joyful and excellent as a slave? I'll tell you why. Because he never identified himself as a slave. I'm in a situation of slavery, but my situation is not my identity. You see, the brothers took the robe off his shoulders, but they could not take the father's favor out of his heart. I still wear the robe. You only took the visible manifestation of it, but the father's favor. I'm still Joseph. I'm still the favorite son of Jacob. I'm still the one who wears the robe of many colors. I'm still favored. And you can put me in a situation of slavery, but you can never make me a slave in my heart. I'm not a slave. I'm a son. And he served Potiphar as if Potiphar were his father. Why? Because jo- Joseph didn't know how to be anything other than a son. Wow. So good. So good. Yeah. That's all he knew how to be, was a son. 
the worst situation, the best attitude. Why? Because I carry favor in my heart. And just like I can't feel rejection, I also can't feel disappointment. I can't feel disappointment. Why? Because my Father's favor is with me always. The only thing that could disappoint me is if you could take the Father's favor out of my heart. And nothing can take me out. Nothing can take the Father's love out of my heart. Nothing can take the Father's favor out of my heart. Nothing can take that moment away from me when he looked into my eyes and said, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Nothing can take that from me. No situation. You put me anywhere, I'm going to be a son. You need me to sweep this floor, I'm going to sweep it like a son. You need me to mow this lawn, I'm going to mow it like a son. You need me to build a fence, I'm going to build it like a son. And I do it with joy and I do it with excellence. Why? Because that's what a son does. And you put me in the prison, I'm going to do the same thing in the prison. Even though it was the worst situation. I mean, Potiphar's Potiphar's skanky wife. She wasn't loyal. She lied on him. And once again, remember, he's in the house by himself, minding his own business, probably making a bed, cleaning the floor or something. And Potiphar's Potiphar's wife comes in, scandalous woman. She's like, and listen, lie with me. She was direct. (laughs) Now, here's the attitude Joseph could have had. Because Joseph was in his early 20s at the time. Single, ready to mingle, and no provision had been made for that part of his life. And so Joseph could have concluded, shoot, I'm going to get mine. God hasn't given me a wife. What I'm supposed to do. I'm a man. God knows what I need, and he hasn't provided for it. So I might as well take matters into my own hands. And shoot, she came after me. She threw it at me. I didn't come after her. Shoot. I'm going to repent later. Thank God for Jesus. God knows my heart. It's only going to be this one time, though. I'm not going to do it again after this. But, she's, but what does Joseph say? How can I commit this evil against God and against my master Potiphar? Listen to what he says. Your husband has made me master over everything in this house except you. How can I commit this sin? He's, a, he's in the situation of a slave and he's loyal to his master? He says, how can I commit this evil against my master Potiphar? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying... My situation is so good. Do you hear what he's saying? Why would I mess up the best possible situation I could be in right now? Do you know where we get justification for sin? Is when we conclude that I'm in a terrible situation, God's not doing anything about it, so I might as well just get mine, and I might as well just handle my best because God doesn't care about me anyway. But Joseph's been beaten thrown in a pit, stripped of the robes, sold as a slave, and he still doesn't see himself as being in a bad situation. He still defines it as a good situation. I'm in a great place. 
I got the best master in the world. How could I possibly sin against God in my mind? That is, if, if you do not, listen, it's one thing to say God is good. Yeah. But it means nothing unless you say God is good to me. The psalmist said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Some of you have lost heart because you stopped believing in the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You stopped believing that God is good to you. You don't realize that there's no such thing as pure theological truth. None of the truths of scripture mean anything if you don't believe that God is that to you. Jesus is Savior, but is he your Savior? He's Lord, but is he your Lord? Jesus died on the cross, but did he die for your sins? God is good, but is he good to you? And until you get a revelation of the goodness of God that is currently manifest in your current situation, even in the midst of the worst possible situation, your heart can be in the best possible place if you wear the favor of God as a garment on your soul. This woman keeps coming after him. Temptation will not leave you alone. And Joseph could have said, well, I resisted her three times. But the fourth time, you know, it was too much for me. Why? Because she grabbed his coat. She grabbed his garment. Isn't it interesting that everybody's trying to take Joseph's garment? She grabs his coat and says, lie with me right now. Now Joseph has a choice. He can keep his garment and lose his integrity, or he can lose his garment and keep his integrity. He has to choose between being unfaithful and being exposed. If I slip out of my garment, I'm going to run outside exposed. But if I keep my garment, I'm going to stay in here, and I'm going to be defiled. Joseph was not afraid of being exposed. He ditched his garment, and he ran for his life. Sometimes to get out of sin, you've got to ditch your garment. And your garment is whatever thing of value is holding you back from walking in integrity with God. It could be your computer. Mm -hmm. Are you willing to ditch it? It could be your Netflix account. You're living with her. Well, I don't have any place to go. Ditch your garment. I'm just going to let that sit just for a second. Because I feel the Holy Spirit just working on that one. Just all up in, all up in it. Just all up in it. Why was he willing to ditch his garment? Because he believed in the goodness of the Lord. It wasn't for him about right and wrong. It wasn't a moral decision he made. Well, it it would be morally wrong. No, he saw it as breaking a covenant with someone who was too valuable to him. Number one, how can I commit this sin against God? Meaning, my relationship with God is just far too valuable for me to break covenant with him in order to have this temporary moment of pleasure. Number two, God gave me my master Potiphar. He saw his current situation as being God-given. And he saw the good in it. He said, I can't break covenant with Potiphar, and I can't break covenant with God. It's, I, what I have there is too valuable. It's too good. Yeah. You've got to see your current situation as being too good. Yeah. What God has given you now has to be too good to you. 
You see, the problem is when we see our own identity and purpose as something functional, we also see our relationship with God as something functional. And you think, I've got to function in order to please God, but also God has to function in order to please me. And just as I haven't pleased God yet because I have to do right enough in order to please God, God hasn't pleased me yet because I need God to do the following things in order for me to be pleased. And God wants to take you out of that whole arrangement. And watch this. Joseph does right and it goes wrong. Which would have totally devastated most of us. Shoot, I did the right thing and I go to prison. Joseph gets caught up in the prison industrial complex. (laughs) The criminalization of Junus. (laughs) He does the right thing, but the covenant still gets broken with him and and Potiphar. And he gets thrown in prison because she lies on him. What happens when you do the right thing and it still goes wrong? Now how do you feel about God? When you have not been established in the love of God, you interpret negative situations as, the, as God's love failing you. Wow, yeah. Because we have not been established in the love of God, here's how you can tell if you have not been established in the love of God. Do you ever feel that God's love has failed you? I hear believers say it all the time. Well, if God loves me, he sure has a funny way of showing it. When you're established in the love of God, you will make a decision. And if there's no other decision that you make this weekend, make this one. Never again will I doubt the love of God. No matter what I walk through, I'm going to walk through it and say, God loves me so much. God's love is here with me right now. God's love, the goodness of God is with me right now in the midst of this. God is good all the time, and he's good to me right now. Joseph walks through the worst possible situations, but does not doubt the love of God, does not doubt the fact that he's favored by God, does not doubt that God is with him, that God is favoring him, does not doubt that God is with him, that God is favoring him. He does not doubt the love of God. That's what it means to be a son. your purpose is to be loved by God, then you pursue your purpose by clinging to that love at all costs. And the moment you begin to doubt the love of God for you, you've actually abandoned your purpose. That's the definition of failure in the Christian life. God no longer loves me. The accusation against God. He doesn't love me. He's not with me. You know what's crazy to me is Joseph's in prison. He meets the butler and the baker. I would have been the most depressed mofo in that entire prison. (laughs) But Joseph meets the butler and the baker and their faces are downcast. And Joseph comes up, why are your faces downcast? Why do you look so sad? Translation, it's a beautiful day. What a wonderful day to be alive in this prison. Somebody would have had to ask me, why is your face downcast? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you why. Because Potiphar 
and his scandalous wife. Well, we had dreams and we don't know what they mean. Tell me the dreams. Does not interpretation belong to the Lord? How is Joseph still connected? To, how is, why is he still hearing from God encouraging people? You need to hear from God? Tell me the problem. I'll talk to God right now. I'm ready. I'd have been on sabbatical from encouragement for the next. I'm not encouraging nobody till you get me out of this jail. Walking around the jail, looking at people, you're just as mad as I am. Yeah. And they say, well, you know, the butler says, this is my dream. And Joseph goes, that's a great dream. The dream means in three days, Pharaoh's going to restore you to your place. He goes, wow, that's cool. And the baker goes, well, here's my dream. And Jacob, Joseph goes, not a good dream. <laughs> Sorry to let you know this, but uh, Pharaoh's going to kill you in three days. Have a great day, guys. <laughs> but before he walks off, he says to the butler, by the way, when Pharaoh restores you to his court in three days, remember me. Which is an inkling of the fact that Joseph still is trying to make a way for himself. He knows he's in a good situation, that God's going to work it out, but he still feels a little bit of an inkling of, maybe this is my way out. Why is he encouraged? Because he still remembers the dreams that he had when he was 17 years old. He still believes in the dreams. He remembers that God showed him that he's destined for greatness, and because God showed him that he's destined for greatness, he can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, because you are with me. Your rod and your staff will strengthen me. Why? Because he knows that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. He understands that this is somehow going to work its way out. He understands that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He understands. But the process is designed to weed out of Joseph every inkling that he can do it by his own power. When you get back to Pharaoh's court, remember me. And the butler goes, no problem. I will not forget you, Joseph. I will never forget you. Three days later, he goes back to Pharaoh's court. He's like, see you later. <laughs> and he forgets all about him. Yeah. For three years. Yeah. Until Pharaoh has a dream. Yeah. And Pharaoh can't sleep. And he calls all of his diviners. And none of them can interpret the dream for him. And all of a sudden, now the butler remembers. Wait a second. You got a guy in prison right now who can interpret that dream for you? Yeah. And Pharaoh says, go get him right now. Now, here's the question. If you're Joseph and Pharaoh calls for you in the middle of the night, are you ready? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or did you lose heart so many years ago that when it's time for you to hear from God, you can't? Did you get so discouraged and so disappointed in your difficult place that you just, just begin to accept the idea that God left you, that God forgot about you, that God doesn't have a plan for you, that God's not going to work out anything for your good? When it's time for you to hear from God, are you ready? 
or did you lose heart? Are you still connected to the goodness of God in the land of the living? Are you still connected in your heart to the fact that God loves you? When it's time for your mission to play out. See, this is the problem. Most of us never get to our mission because we lost sight of our purpose and our identity so long ago that even if God were to give us our mission, we wouldn't be ready to walk in it because we stopped walking in the spirit because of disappointment so long ago. All I want to know is what God wants me to do. Well, what God has for you to do might be 20 years in your future. There's always a process of years and decades of God preparing you to walk in your destiny. But during those years of preparation, are you going to walk with him? Are you going to stay connected to his love? If you're not established in your purpose and in your identity, you'll never fulfill your mission. You guys know who Smith Wigglesworth is? He had the most powerful healing ministry in the whole 20th century. Raised the dead, Clint. I mean, it was like so many miracles that were so powerful. Even dead people would die, and he would raise them to life. And it was like, it was so, it was, he raised his wife up several times from the dead when she was old. And finally she told him, leave me alone. <laughs> you got to let me go. I'm tired of coming back when I'm with Jesus. You keep, I don't want to see you. I want to see him. Leave me alone. But you know when he started praying for the sick? When he was 16. Do you know when they started getting healed? When he was 50. 34 years of preparation. 34 years of testing. 34 years of chastening of the Lord. 34 years of being broken down and disappointment. 34 years of failing again and 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 again. You know what kept him those 34 years? Is being established in the love of God for his life, knowing that God is good all the time, knowing that if even if I don't see what I want to see, I see him who died for me. I see the one who died for me and was raised again, and I am established in his love. For Joseph, it was 13 years. The word of the Lord tested Joseph before it came to pass. There was 13 years of the word of the Lord working on the inside of him. This is why the scripture says that when you, when you eat the scroll, it's sweet in your mouth but sour in the belly. When you hear from God and God begins to give you promises, they're sweet to your mouth. But when you leave and you begin to, it begins to work its way out in your life, it's sour in your belly. Meaning, you've got, you're going, listen, you're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And that is a painful process sometimes. You're going to walk through some valleys and some dark places. You're going to... and somebody, if, if, Whoever told you that come to Christ and everything will be hunky-dory lied to you. Sometimes the struggles that you walk through are the sign of the greatness of the destiny that God has prepared you for. The only question is, are you going to lose heart? Or are you going to keep believing that you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? When sonship is your identity, you can walk through many functional failures without losing heart. When sonship is your identity, you can walk through many difficult situations without losing heart. When sonship is your identity, you can suffer the loss of many things without losing heart. When sonship is your identity, you can endure persecution. You can endure temptation. You can endure hardship. You can endure rejection without losing heart. Why? Because at the core of your being, at the core of your soul, is the knowledge of the fact that your father loves you, that his favor rests upon you, and that his favor is a coat of many colors 
that no one can ever take away. The only person who can take it off of you is you. And you can take it off through your unbelief. Unbelief is the means by which we take off the coat of many colors and throw it on the ground and say it's worthless because the Father doesn't love me. There is no worse accusation than to accuse the Father of not loving you. Settle it in your heart today. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. And this is, now we go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Listen, now you can hear Romans 8 in its context where Paul gets to the end of that chapter and he just goes gangster for a while. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> it is Christ, it says, he who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is Christ who died, who furthermore is also risen, who is even at God's right hand, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or peril or distress or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear what Paul is saying? I wear the coat of many colors. You can't take it off me, devil. Jesus loves me. This I know. I am convinced. I am persuaded. I will not be dissuaded. I will not be unconvinced. You got to buy the truth and sell it not. Buy the truth today. You got to buy it. Are you buying what I'm saying to you? You got to buy the truth and make a decision. I'm not selling this. No matter what comes of it, I'm not selling this truth that Jesus loves me. This I know. And when you get a hold of that truth, suddenly you begin to see that God is not just good, but he's good to me. And he's good to me right now. Right in the place I'm at right now. He's good to me right now. Amen. Amen. All right, Pastor Sonny, you got it. If I could have the worship team to join me. I believe today God wants every one of us to look into the closets in our hearts and take out every wrong garment. You know, just like what's in the, who read the prologue? Just like what is written in the prologue, I no, I never knew my earthly father's favor. The only thing I remember, I remember like only memory that I have of my earthly father, I was like, what, like eight years old, and I came in from playing outside, and then as soon as I came into his room, he just grabbed me and he just slapped me from one end to the other. And I'm getting like slapped, and I'm thinking, why? What did I do wrong? Why are you hitting me? And then he said, get out. And then I went out of his room. Till this day, I have no idea why my daddy slapped me from one room to the other. And so two years later, I received Jesus Christ from a young age. And even though I've known Jesus and I've been saved, I grew up all my teenage years, in my 20s, feeling like I'm insignificant in the kingdom of God. 
And I used to tell, I used to tell Benjamin and all my friends and even my pastors, I feel like I'm very insignificant, that I should be just be, I should be just thankful that my name is written in the book of life, but I shouldn't ask for anything else. The enemy always lied to me and said, you love God, then be in the corner, don't try to do anything because you'll mess it up and you will defame his glory. I lived my life wearing rejection, wearing insignificance. That's why our first Abba conference back in 2008, I ran to the altar taking off those garments of insignificance those garments of rejection and I put on for the first time in my life this garment of favor but you know what even in that moment I did not know how to keep that garment on because I would get lost and the enemy would throw this garment of rejection and significance right and without me thinking I pick it up and I wear it I keep wearing it and I keep walking in it and every time I come back come before God God's like that's not what I bought you that's that's that, that's not the garment I prepare for you and every season of my life of maturing is learning to recognize oh shoot why am I wearing this garment again and taking that off Back in, I don't know, 2012, 13, God gave me that word, upgraded blessings, that my favor will go before you. You know, before that promise, I never won a raffle. Baby shower, bridal shower, even if I bought more than anybody, I never won one raffle. I never get the good parking by the mall. I always have to drive around and park way in the back and wall because you know what? I don't know what it means to be favored. Because I grew up with my mother's friends, with aunties, with people saying, Your daddy doesn't love you, your daddy never wanted you. So I never expected to win. But after that promise, a few years ago, without asking, every time I went on a mission trip, they would call my name and they would upgrade me to first class or business class. And that favor lasted about four years. It, it stopped now. I'm like, oh, God, come on. <laughs> now I get angry. Hey, where's my first class? God had to make that season last that many years because no matter how many times God tried to put on that garment of favor over me I keep taking it off I keep taking it off and the mercy and the grace of God that kept putting it back on every time I took it off he would bring it and he would put it back on and it took few years for me to really recognize child of God that my daddy God loves me no matter what even I don't preach well even when people get offended for what I say wrong during sermon <laughs> even then the favor of God never lifts that he favors 
me. If you would just all arise with me. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open our eyes to see what garments, God, the enemy has put in our hearts, Lord. What garments, God, we keep wearing it again and again and again. God, is it rejection? God, what is it? Is it, Lord, insignificance? God, what is it? Failure, Lord. God, help us to see the wrong garments that are, that are in the closets of our hearts. And today, God, today, once again, by your mercy and grace, God, help us to take it off. Take those wrong garments off. Help us, God, to put the right garment of favor, the coat of many colors. It's not just for someone like Benjamin, who had loving parents, but it also is for someone like Sunny, who did not have a good earthly parents. It's for all of us. It's for every son. It's for every daughter of God. No matter, no matter what background you come from. Oh God, help us to put on the right garment this morning. And this is what I want us to do as worship team leads worship. You know what? Let's spend some time worshiping. As a worship team leads worship. If you're like me, I want you to walk to the front. And in your walking to the front, Imagine yourself taking those garments off. The garment, the wrong garments off. And as you take those wrong garments off, determine within your heart, I will never question the goodness, the love of my Father. You know, I always question God's love. And even after I get, got married, I questioned Benjamin's love. Every time we fought, I say, you don't love me. And Benjamin's like, I love you. I would say, no, you don't. You don't love me. If you can't receive God's love, it doesn't matter who you marry. You can marry the, the godliest man, selfless man, and you will still question their love for you. But as you determine to put on the garment of favor, you're going to determine, God, help me never to question your love. Establish, establish me in the love of the Father. And as you come forward, imagine yourself putting on the garment of favor. And in that garment of favor, I want you to allow the water of God, waters from the, the Holy of Holies to flow, to wash you, to cleanse you of every rejection, of every failure, of every lie of the enemy, that you walk out of this sanctuary with the right garments on.